preaching of God's Word. Turn with me in your Bibles to John 15. John 15, we're going to finish this chapter this morning. And what I'd like to do is I'd like for us to stand while we read these handful of verses. So go ahead and stand with me out of honor for the Word of God. And I'll read these verses. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, if I had done among them the works that no one else did, if I had not done among them the, world, the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Be seated. Because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to gather together around your word, the open Bible. We ask, Lord, that you would equip your servant to preach faithfully and to not distort anything and that your word would come clear and undistorted to your people, and that it would bless and edify them and as we walk this pilgrim path to the final destination of the glorious new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth. Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, what we read just now, we can see, if you were paying attention from last week, is an unmistakable tone shift. That last week what we looked at from verse 17 to verse 18, in those, those previous verses, verse 9 through 17, the word love appears nine times. And then in our text this morning, in verses 18 through 25, the word hate appears eight times in our English Bibles. So the unfathomable glory of the love of Christ prepares us for the inevitable hatred of the world. John says in 1 John 3, 13, Do not be despised, brothers, that the world hates you. Or do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Jesus is currently where we are in the Gospel of John and has been doing for several chapters now, preparing his disciples to endure in his absence. And before he broached the topic of the world's hatred of them, he filled them and whisked them to the highest heights of his love for them and the command for them to love each other. He prepared them to hear this. This is the biblical logic that Jesus is, is outlining that we can always see. It doesn't matter who hates me as long as the one true God loves me. And we see this throughout Scripture. Psalm 23, 4, a favorite psalm of all people. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. You're rod and your staff to comfort me. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 118, 6 and 7. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look on in triumph on those who hate me. New Testament, 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, this is a biblical logic that if God is with me, then I can, I can go. I can do whatever I may face. When I was a kid growing up, we went to this youth camp called Frontier Camp in the thriving metropolis of Grapeland, Texas, where there are no grapes, but there is much land. Uh, and we would go there as kids, and what they would do back in the old days before, I guess, more lawyers got a hold of lawsuits is we would have, an, in the middle of the night, an all-boys camp pillow fight out in the woods. You can see why that is now unacceptable in our day. But we would go out there, and I would go to camp with my little brother. 
And as a good brother, when that big pillow fight and it's just a flailing mass of chaos and, and uh, carnage just going around, running through the trees, hitting each other with pillows in the dark, and everybody's out there and all the counselors are out there, as a good older brother, I rallied my cabin, because I was the older kid's cabin, and my brother was in the younger kid's cabin. I rallied my cabin. I said, guys, let's go and pummel the little kids. But we go and we would just beat them with pillow or we were going to try to. But what we did not recognize is that my brother's counselor was this guy named Jason Burkhalter. You hear that name and it just trembles down your spine, doesn't it not? Jason Burkhalter. And he was, he, he must have been an NFL linebacker to a 10-year-old brain. That's what he looked like to me. And his cabin was the little guys and he, they went out with full and free immunity knowing that Jason was there. So when I come I land one shot on my brother, and then all I see is white moving at me at the speed of light. And then I'm on my back, shoulders first, because Jason had knocked me out for trying to get my own brother. But they ran, those little boys ran out there knowing we can do anything because Jason Burkhalter is with us, completely without fear. Jesus is preparing his disciples to be a peculiar people in this upper room moment he's hours before the cross this is the night before he dies he's preparing them to be peculiar to stick out to not fit in to look different to seem odd he's preparing them for that because we're not naturally given to this calling everyone typically we want approval and we want acceptance from the wider culture because christians were being discipled and prepared for the opposite so our text this morning, we're going to be looking at what will their cultural status be when Jesus is gone. That's what they're concerned about. And then why will it be that way? Why will that be their status with the culture? And then how will they endure in that kind of status all the way to the end? What Jesus has been preparing, what the Bible has been saying from end to end, is that we are a pilgrim, a people on a journey. If you look at the old King James, 1 Peter 2, 11 says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Abstain from fleshly lust, which weighs war against the soul. That's what we are, strangers and pilgrims. We don't fit permanently in this world as it's presently ordered. We're travelers on a journey, and when we stop and rest, locals can tell by the way we act and by the way we talk that you're not from around here. They can tell that. We don't talk like them. We have different traditions, and we have different customs. And because of this, you get suspicion right hey you're not from, you don't act like us what's what's your deal we're not given the benefit of the doubt and we're guilty until proven innocent but we are headed somewhere that we do belong we're headed somewhere where people talk the same and they think and act the same as we do as the people of god we're headed to a place that the bible calls Zion, that pilgrim's progress calls the celestial city that the scriptures call new jerusalem on the new heavens and the new earth a city that's for us Hebrews 11, also in the King James, just because it reads so pretty, in verse 13 and following, these all died in faith, meaning these faithful brothers and sisters that he just listed out, they all died in faith, not having received the promises, meaning they didn't get that land, that city, but having seen them from afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, that's what we're looking for, a country that's ours. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And that's what we are doing, and that's what Jesus is preparing these men for in that upper room. And what we need to do this morning is sit at our feet and realign ourselves to this truth sit at Christ's feet and realign ourselves to this truth. So we're going to look at, it's essentially just three headings. What is our new status when Jesus is now gone? What is our new status with the world? Why is it that way that that's our status? And then how do we endure faithfully to the end in that status? So in verses 18 and 19, Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates me, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus moves directly from the disciples loving each other, from Jesus saying, abide in my love, this is my love, it will abide in you. He moves directly from that and in one verse moves to you being hated and me being hated. 
It's pretty abrupt. Life comes at you fast, Jesus could be saying to his disciples. And we'll tend to focus on the hatred that we receive, and that's natural. We get, you get that when you're feeling it. You, you focus on yourself. But the hatred is really towards Jesus. And he starts that out in verse 18. And in the eight times that it says that the word hate, only three is it referring to hatred to us. Five is referring to Jesus and the Father himself. Hated by the world. Well, what is the world? We've got to define our terms because you can make that mean anything that you want it to mean. What is the world? If we're going to know, we got to know who's hating us if we're going to be hated. Here's how a few commentators defined the word world or the concept world. One said that it's the controlling mentality of unbelieving mankind. Another said it's the created moral order in active rebellion against God. Yet another said that the realm, it's the realm of evil, the society of wicked men who have set themselves against Christ and his kingdom. And then lastly, it's, it's the evil fallen world system comprised of unregenerate people and controlled by Satan. That's the world. That's what Jesus is talking about as the world. This system of unbelievers, people in power, headed by Satan. Not even just people in power, people who are not in the kingdom of God. A parallel kingdom. And we know that the world hated Jesus first. That's what he said. No, that it has hated me before it hated you. And he's already said this. John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, hates Jesus, and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So we need to be diligent to throw off notions and fend off notions of self-importance. Satan, the god of this world, he hates God. Not necessarily us. We are secondary targets. He hates God, and he's set against God. We are hated by association. This is Satan's playbook throughout history. He doesn't really have any real beef with Job in the book of Job. He's trying to get to God, right? He's trying to shame and embarrass and humiliate God, steal glory from God, and he's going to use Job to do that. And the same is true in a, in a situation like Samuel, when the people say, we want a king. Give us a king like everybody else. And Samuel is the judge, which had been the pattern up to that point. And God says, Samuel, in Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You just represent me, so you hear the audible words, but they're really rejecting me, Samuel. So now we know we are really hated, and we, are, we do really suffer. We're going to get to that. But the hatred of Christ must be established first, and that's why he does it this way. The disciples know that the world hates Jesus. They've seen it, have they not? In 15 chapters in the Gospel of John, haven't they seen massive crowds just leave Jesus? The, the leadership trying to kill Jesus, making that known. Jesus saying, one of you is going to betray me. Another one of you, Peter, I'm going to go ahead and say your name, is going to deny me. They've seen him be ill-treated. They've seen that. But they need to be reminded of it as they're going into this new era where Christ is not physically present on the earth. They need to be reminded of that. And it must be made clear that we are the disciples of a globally despised figure. We have to embrace that. It would be dishonest to tell anyone anything different. We worship, we imitate, and obey a deity that is despised by the majority of the globe and throughout history. Jesus says this about himself to his beloved disciples. This is how Sproul said, he said, unbelievers can tolerate Christ stripped of his real identity. They can tolerate Jesus that far as long as he's not really the biblical Jesus. And as he explains further, he says in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The disciples of Christ, the people of God, the church left here, we are not of the world. That's what Jesus is saying. So they hate me first, and therefore, by association, they hate you you're, because you're not of them. You're not from them. Jesus chose you out of them. You go back to verse 16. What did Jesus say to his disciples then? You did not chose me, but I chose you. I chose you out. And that's the duty of the good shepherd, right? 
John 10, 2 through 4 says that the sheep, I call to them, they hear my voice, and they follow me. They follow behind me. They're going the direction of me. The, the ones, the sheep that are trotting along behind me, they are with me. They're not the ones that are left behind in the common community sheepfold. Those are not my sheep, Jesus says. My sheep follow me. I call them out. They come out of that common sheepfold. We are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. John 18, 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom's not of this world. It's a separate kingdom. It's a different kingdom. His servants, <clears throat> he has servants, he says, but they're not acting like the world. They're citizens of a different kingdom. Therefore, they behave differently. We are not of the world, Jesus says. We are something different. We have different traditions. We have different values. We have different virtues and mannerisms. We have different schedules and calendars and even a different language. It may sound like the kingdom of this world's language, but it's different. But why? Why does the world hate us? Aside from the association, there's something else underlying it. Look at verse 19. You would have gotten the love of the world, but I chose you out. The underlying reason is we know we're, we're hated because we're attached to Christ, but why are we attached to Christ? Because Jesus made a choice. That's what he says. He made a choice, and it's his choice that we are hated. He decided to have his loved ones be hated by the majority culture that they live in by choosing them as his own. He chose that for us. It wasn't our decision to be hated by the world. Jesus decided that for us. And elsewhere, it's called a gift in the Bible. In Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted. If you're granted something, if you're granted entrance into the state capitol, what does that mean? You were given entrance into the state capitol. So if you're granted something, you're given something. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, so faith is a gift, but also suffer for his sake. That's a gift. That's been given to the people of God. By the sheer fact that Jesus loves us, the world hates us. They don't always know why they hate us. They can't maybe articulate it, but we know, and we can articulate it. Jesus chose us out from them. We're not a part of that anymore. He made us separate from them. That's why. But here we must pause and stop and say, this is a cause for great encouragement. Because the majority of the world that exists hates you, what does that then say about you? You are Christ's. The commenter J.C. Riley said, it's like the goldsmith's hallmark on real silver or real gold, proving this is the genuine article. That persecution and hatred is that article. You're the real thing. So when we are hated by the world, instead of doubting whether or not I'm saved, it proves that I am. It shows that I am because Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would what? It would love you. But it doesn't love you, so what does that mean you must then be? You must be Christ's. So we look into this fact, what is, what is true of you if the world loves you? Well, according to Jesus, it means you're of the world. If the world loves you, that means you are the world's own. That means Jesus hasn't called you out. The world only loves its own, Jesus says. And if you lo are loved by the world, that means you belong to it and not to Jesus. So wait, now we got to stop right here because we know we have personalities always floating in around the church and the church at large. Does that mean then that the safest thing is is to be a humongous jerk and just make everybody hate you? No, absolutely not. First Peter would tell us so. First Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the world, honorable, so that when they speak against you, when they speak against you, as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 20 of the same chapter, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, so you sin and the world hates you, what credit, what good is that? And you endure that? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The people of God are not supposed to have a, an animosity 
them a pugilistic spirit, a chip on their shoulder. No, we're the opposite of that. First Peter 3, 15 and following, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Here's what we do. We are always ready, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We can speak clearly about the gospel and about the Bible and about why we live the way that we do. Comma, what does it say? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when, not if, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And we get that. We understand this. You can't be an elder without being sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not violent, but gentle, and not quarrelsome. You can't be a leader in Christ's church if, you're, if you are not those things. But at the same time, we're told in the same book of 1 Timothy 3, where those qualifications are listed, that we're supposed to fight the good fight of faith. So there is this understanding that we are in a, a world of tension, but we should not be ourselves pugilistic, ready to fight at the drop of a hat, quarrelsome. We don't have to seek persecution. You don't have to go and earn it. It's a promise. There's, a, there's always been in evangelicalism this find a promise in the Bible and claim it. You know what promise we never claim? 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hey, that's my, that's my life verse right there, baby. I'm going to claim that. Give me that. No, we, we want, like, oh, I desire good things for you and all this happiness. But there's a promise from the Bible. You will be. If you want to live godly, you will be persecuted in some way. Even still, we're commanded to seek peace. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as if it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It may not depend upon you at some point, but all the times that it does, you should be peaceful. And yet Jesus still says in Luke 6, 26, woe to you, woe, condemnation of eternal recompense, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So Christ has plainly spoken that hatred from the world is a fact. We don't seek it as some kind of distorted pursuit of aesthetic holiness, but we expect it, and it, shouldn't be, it should be weird if it's absent. If the world loves and approves of all that we're doing and saying, then what we are doing and saying is not what Jesus did and said. This is how J.C. Ryle said it. He said, mere churchmanship and outward profession are a cheap religion course and cost a man nothing but real vital christianity will always bring with it a cross so we don't seek our fellowship with the world we only find it in the church that's why jesus spent the previous chunk of verses describing the love that he has for us and that we have for each other because we're not going to have any love like that outside of this gathering outside of the people of god we will not have that it will not be there. First Corinthians says, what fellowship has light and darkness? What fellowship has the devil and Christ? We don't find fellowship out there. We find it in the covenant community in here, but out there is just hatred, whether it be latent or displayed. Why is this the case? This is what we get into in verses 20 through 25, but we see first in 20 and 21, the mark of the master. This is why. In verse 20, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So Jesus is saying, if, if I'm the master and then you're the slave, and if I ride into town and I'm beaten and I'm stoned and I'm treated horribly by the townspeople, then what should my slaves expect? You should expect worse treatment than that, honestly, but certainly nothing better than that. Slaves don't get better treatment. They don't get better food, better accommodations, better anything than their master. And if Christ is our master and we are his servants, anything better either. If that's what happens to the master, if that's what happens to the best, to the strongest, to the holiest, to the most righteous, to the actual true God, then we shouldn't expect anything different. When we see him that way, that's what we should expect for us. This is what happened to me in sixth grade playing football for the first time. We had these two guys, these two country boys, Wes Gideon and Richard Harding. Now, they don't sound like cowboys to you. I don't know what cowboy movies you've ever watched. Wes Gideon and Richard Harding. 
And those boys, they were eighth graders and I was a sixth grader and they did all the work. They ran the ball, they tackled the big guys, they did all of that stuff. And then we played this school in Brenham, Texas. And they had a boy who I, I, we saw shaving at halftime and I think drove to the game. He was humongous and his, it was like, he was like made out of concrete. And Wes Gideon and Richard Harding could not bring him down. And that happened all game. And then lo and behold, one day, we're, we didn't score the whole game, but we had to kick off at second half because we lost a coin toss. So we're kicking off, and I'm on the kickoff team, and that, of course that guy gets the ball. He runs past Richard, and he runs over Wes, and then here I am, 150 pounds, dripping wet, if that, and he's running right at me, and I just stick my arm out and close my eyes and just pray. And if he runs over Richard and Wes, of course he's going to destroy me. It was like getting hit by railroad ties, just boom, boom. And it spun me around. I'm on the ground just seeing black and green and all, all kinds of things. And if Richard and Wes can't tackle him, then what hope do I have? If that's how they, he, this running back treats those guys, then it's going to be way worse for me. And that's what Jesus is saying to us. We shouldn't expect better treatment in this world than Jesus got. But actually, the opposite is true. We should feel honored when we get treated the way that Jesus was. We saw the apostles do this, right? Acts 5, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced. They left that council who had just beat them for preaching the gospel, rejoicing. We were worthy. We looked enough like Jesus that they associated us with him what could be better than that? We got treated like him. What could be better than that? What could be more noteworthy? What could be more uh, worthy of our pursuit than that? A privilege to suffer for the name of Christ, the concept that the bitter must always come before the sweet. Suffering always comes before rest. Nothing we can do can prevent this hatred because it happened to Jesus. It doesn't matter how holy, how humble, how friendly, how kind, how gracious, how outreachy, how fair our conduct is, no matter how soft and quiet our tone, it will never prevent wicked people from hating us as Christ's servants. Because we can't ever say about Jesus that he had the wrong tone. He's perfect. We can't ever say about Jesus that he didn't distribute or display enough of godliness. He didn't display enough holiness or kindness or love or charity. But he was persecuted and he suffered. So no matter what we do, here's the only way to eliminate suffering. Because it is suffering by choice. All we have to do is water down the message. And suffering's over. All we have to do is edit the words of Christ and it's over. That's it. And then suffering goes away. But if Jesus is our master and we are truly serving him, then no matter what we do, no matter how kind, no matter how nice, no matter how generous, no matter how much we give or how much we serve in the community, no matter how well-behaved our kids are, no matter how faithful we are to pay our taxes down to the penny, it won't matter because when they say, tell me that the winner of the NCAA Women's Swimming Championships is a woman, and we say, I can't do that. Tell me that God does not care about me living with my girlfriend or boyfriend. We can't. Tell me that homosexuality is natural and ordered correctly. We can't. It doesn't matter how softly we say it. It doesn't matter how much, how kind we are. If we edit the message, it'll go away. But if we don't, then we must stop acting like what Jesus said won't be true for us. If they persecuted him, then they will persecute us. In verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. The why continues to develop. Why do they hate us? Two reasons, because of who we represent and because of who they don't know. We bear the name of the Lord Jesus. Isn't that what the apostles said? They were counted worthy to suffer for the name that's what it said. That's what Jesus says here. We're, by association, in our minds, or in their minds, the world's minds, we are guilty by association. By our efforts 
and sanctification as well, that would be piling up more evidence for them to use against us. I bet you're just like that lunatic Jesus of Nazareth, and to which we should say, well, I sure hope so. On a family vacation one time in Washington, D.C., I think I was maybe in third, third or fifth grade, we were there, and I was wearing what is normal clothes to me, and I keep getting all these mean looks. We're at, like, burger joints and, like, normal places because we don't dine fancy on vacation when I was a kid. And I get all these weird looks from people. We're, we're in D.C., you know, it's like at McDonald's or their equivalent of McDonald's, whatever they call it up there. It's not In-N-Out, but they have another one. Uh, certainly not Whataburger. It's only in God's country. Uh, but we were eating there, and I'm like, Dad, people keep looking at me weird. I said, that's because of your hat and your shirt. I said, what's wrong with my hat and my shirt? Well, it's a cowboy's hat and it's a cowboy's shirt. I was like, well, why? Why don't they? They don't like the cowboys around here. And I was like, why? But we're in America's capital, and this is America's team. (laughs) So why do they not like me? And I said America's team too loud. My dad was like, be quiet. (laughs) they They don't think like that. And I was like, what? My mind was blown. I'm being hated because of the name. The name. And I'm a child. This really did happen. I'm not making this up. Wearing the name of Christ gets us hated. Why? Because nobody else thinks that he's that great. Everybody else sees him as a threat to their way of life and their very identity. So the association is the first reason that Jesus says in verse 21. And the second one is they don't know him who sent me they don't know the father it's ignorance second corinthians 4 4 in the case of the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers i mean satan to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of god isn't jesus been saying this throughout john's gospel 15 chapters you don't believe in me because you don't actually know the father if you really knew the father then you would believe in me he said that in a variety of ways repeatedly throughout this whole book. It's the effects of sin. Romans 1, it just tells you that you, you makes your mind become futile and your thinking and your foolish heart is darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and God's given them over to a debased mind. They don't know God. So this is in large part why we don't lash back when we're hated. Because they don't know. They don't know God. Now, certainly they're going to be held accountable for their actions, but by God, not by us. So we don't lash back. We don't fight back because that would be like Jesus spitting back at the people from the cross. What does he say? Father, forgive them. They do not know what it is that they are doing. The first martyr of the Christian church And the new covenant is Stephen. And he says the exact same thing as they're pummeling him to death with rocks. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know you. If they knew you, then they wouldn't be killing me. This is why missionaries go around the world. And and that famous quote from uh, the missionaries, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, when they say, hey, if if the, uh, the, uh, the Aqua people... I'm not saying it right, but the tribe people in, in Peru, in the jungle, if they try to kill you, are you going sh- to shoot back? And he says, no. I know where I'm going if I die, and I know where they're going if they die. So I'm not going to send them there. They, they, and they're only killing me because they don't know God. And it won't help them at all if I kill them. So this is why. We don't, they, they don't know. And the other reason why is because Jesus' presence just proves their guilt. Look at verses 22 through 24. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had done, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. What does Jesus do? He reveals their sin. Now, he's not saying in this passage is that nobody was guilty of sin until Jesus came. That's not true. But Jesus is saying they're guilty of the sin of openly rejecting me. This nation of Israel right here at this time, he's revealed their sin and they hate it. Just like he reveals all people's sin. That's what you're going to have to do anytime you share the gospel with anyone is to tell them you are a sinner. 
Nobody takes medicine when they don't think they're sick. Jesus reveals sin and it makes it, their grotesqueness and horror visible. And a natural man hates this. Why? Because he loves his sin. John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, Jesus says, but it hates me. Here's the reason why. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's why the world hates me is because I let them know unmistakably my presence makes them aware of their own sin and they hate it because they love their sin. The world under Satan's power says, lie to me. That's what they say. It says, lie to me. Tell me my sin is good and worth celebrating. Affirm that evil is good and good is evil. Stand up and say homosexuality is rightly ordered and in good keeping with nature, let alone God. Say that we can celebrate that the NCAA championship female swimmer and the USA Today Woman of the Year are not men but women. Say that with us. Lie to me. That's what the world says. Tell me that God has no wrath for sin. Lie to me. In Jeremiah 5, 30-31, this has been seen before. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule at their direction, meaning they do what they want. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? This is, we've been here before. And that's nothing new. 2022 is no different than, than B.C. 222. But Jesus goes on in verse 25. He says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So in the midst of all of this, before we get into that verse, Jesus is saying, fear not. This hatred of me is all part of the plan. It had to be fulfilled. This was prophesied. We already read this, by the way. Psalm 69 is where this is quoted from. So David writes that, and Jesus is the son of David, prophetically and genealogically. And if they hate David for no good reason, and they're trying to kill him, and of course it can happen to Jesus, who is far exceedingly above and beyond David, not only in redemptive history, but in just personal morality. They hated me without cause, but that was all part of the plan. That was a prophecy that had to be fulfilled. They have no reason to hate Jesus. All he's done is tell them the truth. Is sin real? Yes. Does God have wrath against sin? Yes. Are you a sinner? Yes. Am I the only way of salvation? Yes. All he's done is told them the truth. Sinners are reconciled to God by repenting and believing. Yes, that's the truth. And then on top of that, what's he done? He's healed their sick. He's fed their hungry. And he's freed their demon-possessed. That, to me, sounds like public work of above all. You're doing a good to society. We have less insane people because they're not dwelled with demons. We have 20,000 people who were fed miraculously in one day because of you. We have blind people that can see. We have lame people that can walk. People that can contribute to society now, but yet we hate you. There's no reason for this. They have no reason to hate him. He's done no wrong. So then why do they? Well, we just, we already read it in John 3, 20. Because those who are in the darkness hate the light because they don't want their sin exposed. That's why they hate him. They love their sin. They love their sin and they want to keep it. Every beloved pastor slash false teacher just like we read in Jeremiah 5 tells the message like this God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life and part of that plan is you get to keep your sin God's fine with it doesn't bother him at all he's a big boy he can take care of it don't worry that mess he'll clean it up you just do you that is in a sense every message you can be right with God and keep your sin Jesus says sin is fine and he doesn't care your sin is compatible with godliness and it's compatible with heaven. That's the message. It's dressed up in different ways, but it's always a version of that. And Jesus says, that's why they hate me. It's because I don't say that. Therefore, he's hated. And we echo Jesus as our master. Therefore, we are hated as well. So you get through verse 25, and you're just like, man, Jesus, do not leave. If this is what's going to happen when you're gone, then just stay. Because this is going to be a nightmare. 
But he goes on to say this, that though you may be hated, you will be greatly helped. In verses 26 and 27, with all this somber, heavy truth, is there any hope? Is there any help? How do we endure in a world like this? Well, verse 26 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And we looked at this Holy Spirit already. Chapter 14, he promised that he would come and he would remind them of everything that Jesus has said. Now he's got a new job. He's going to strengthen you to keep bearing witness, to keep a faithful presence in a world that hates you. I'm not leaving you alone. Remember he said that? I'm not leaving you like orphans who have just been abandoned. I'm sending my spirit. And he said in chapter 14, it's better that I go because it's better that you be personally indwelt by the Holy Spirit than just have me walking around in place and in time. Everybody can have the presence of God when I'm gone. Right now, only you get to see the presence of God here in me. So this is for all people of God for all time. How will we have the strength to stand for the truth, Jesus? He says, the helper coming to you, he is the spirit of truth. And he will comfort, he will help. By the power of the spirit, we carry on bearing witness for Christ. This is the, 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 the fact that we just, we lose we lose in watered-down evangelicalism, but when we stop and think, comprehend that the almighty, eternal, infinite God of the universe, triune and being, equal in essence in all three persons, he takes up residence in you. Upon your conversion to Christ, that God lives in you. I mean, that's unbelievable. Jesus outside of you is amazing. And the disciples are, are rightly concerned about his absence. But when he says this, this is actual comfort. This is a real helper. And helper meant a lot more in the original language. To us, it means like, oh, yeah, you were doing good. You needed a boost. Helper means doer. He's doing it all through you for the glory of God. And so then we can rest in this fact that if this is true, verses 26 and 27, then that means that you, wherever you are, are never alone. You are never without God, ever. This is why Paul and Silas can sing in jail. This is why men and women who have been imprisoned for years wrongfully, think of our brothers and sisters in China right now, they just get yanked up and thrown into a cell they're never alone and then when they come out they just keep doing the same thing because of the power of the spirit within them john 14 21 says he dwells with you and will be in you first corinthians 3 16 do you not know that your body is the temple of god and the spirit of god dwells in you not not a temple up on a mountain in the middle of one place in the middle east the temple's now you He's in you. So we are called to endure the hatred of the world, but we're not called to do it alone. We have the community of faith, all indwelled equally by the Holy Spirit. I don't have more than you, and you don't have more than you, and you don't have more than you. We all have the same spirit. All together, something happens when we gather. And Calvin described this phenomenon like this. He said the spirit is said to testify of Christ because he retains and fixes our faith on him alone. That we may not seek elsewhere any part of our salvation. He calls him also the comforter. That relying on his protection, we may never be alarmed. For by this title, Christ intended to fortify our faith. That it may not yield to any temptations when he calls him the spirit of truth. It is because whenever he speaks, he delivers the minds of men from all doubt and of fear of being deceived. That's the spirit. That's the God that dwells in us. And in verse 27, he caps it off by saying, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He will see to it that we are faithful to the end despite being hated by the culture that we live in. He will finish the good work that he's started in us. He will preserve us to the end because he saved us unchangeably at the beginning. John 16, 33, Jesus says, we got to jump ahead to that, but we're not, we're not going to preach on that. <laughs> we are going to be done, I promise. He says, I have said these things to you 
that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, if Christ has overcome the world, then we can't be overcome by the world because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. The worst thing that the hateful world can do to us is kill us. And that, we are told by the Bible, is not to fear because all that can do is send us home. All that can do is put us face to face with our Savior. That's a reward, not a punishment. So we have nothing to fear. In a world that hates us, we can rest in this, that everything is always going according to plan. Ephesians 1.11, In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. See, the Greek word for all things means all things. Everything works according to the counsel of his will. Nothing is outside of the counsel of his will. Nothing is outside of his plan. So no matter what happens to us, we can rest in that. Proverbs 16, 4 says that the Lord has made everything for its purpose. Everything for its purpose. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. Even they're under the plan of God. And we are promised a witness-bearing presence of the Holy Spirit in this life. Let me read this beautiful passage from Romans 8, 16 and following. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, the Holy Spirit talking to our soul that we are children of God. It's confirmed internally by the Holy Spirit connecting to our soul. And if we are children, then we are heirs. God and fellow heirs with Christ, that should blow our minds. I receive the same inheritance that Jesus does. Nevertheless, that's what it said, provided we suffer with him, with Christ, in order that we also may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The Spirit of God bears witness with our soul, our spirit, that we are his children, and as his children we suffer, but we don't suffer anything that Christ hasn't suffered. And if we suffer like that, we will be glorified with him. And that suffering, Paul says, it's not even worth saying in the same breath as heaven. It's not even worth mentioning when you talk about the glory of God that is heaven. We fear not the suffering and hatred that we endure because it's just not worthy to even talk about when you really talk about what heaven is. I hope that we now together, we understand better what Jesus said early on in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes when he says in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus says, that's a blessing to you when people do that. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Not here, not a great reward here, a great reward in heaven. For they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when you're reviled and persecuted and uttered all kinds of false evil against you. Because we are Christ's, he is with us, and he will see us all the way to the end of the pilgrim path. Let me pray for us. Father, we look at a passage like this, and we are overwhelmed. We almost don't know what to do. Or we, I often feel like that every week when we look at your word. It just is so poignant. Nothing could be more silly than to say we've got to try to make the Bible relevant because we just we feel nothing but its relevance today when we look at a passage like this. Lord, we feel it, and we know that uh, you know that. Lord, we, we see the news, and we see uh, the politics, and we see what's going on all over the globe, and we know you do too. Help us to believe What's, what is true. Help us to believe, Ephesians 1, 11, that you work all things according to the counsel of your will. Help us to believe that. Help us to believe that when things are bad. Help us to believe that when th they do come for us. Help us to, to have a looser grip on this world. We love so many things, and, and we know you've given us so many good things. 
and they are blessings. And you tell us in places like the book of Ecclesiastes over and over again to enjoy them. But help us to not love them more than we love you. Help us to just see them as, as, uh, as crumbs from your feasting banquet table. Help us to have loose grips on the things of this world so that it doesn't hurt as bad when it gets yanked away. Lord, we know that we can't prevent ourselves from all pain. No matter how well prepared we are, we know we can't uh, keep it from hurting. We know it's going to hurt. But may we lean into the graces that you've given us. Each other, as the church, Lord, may we love each other, lean on each other, encourage one another, rejoice and weep with each other. But may we also think meditate and ponder upon the reality that you live in us your holy spirit truly god of truly god sent by you for us may we never forget that may we not think so lightly may we not just think that we're never alone because you are everywhere but but you've chosen to be specifically somewhere in us Father, forgive us for thinking so lightly on that and for not thinking about it at all. Make us more aware of what is true because we know we live in a world that is just begging for lies and eats them a whole. Give us discernment and give us clarity. And may we come to the gathered worship of your saints every Lord's Day expectant to hear more good news because no matter how bad it is, the good news reigns above it. And we are the people of that good news, the people of the gospel. May we, may we love to be together. May we love uh, to hear your word spoken and to read it for ourselves. May we love the fellowship. May we just be willing and free to admit that we need it, especially as the times turn the way they turn. Lord, we know that you are good. We know that your loving kindness, your steadfast love, your, your mercy extends unto the heavens. It has no bounds. So we fall into that, and we need to fall into that afresh every day so that no matter what spins, that we can be the most unflappable people on the planet because we know that everything is always going according to plan, even the hatred of your beloved. Thank you. Thank you for the word. Thank you for equipping us to endure, and thank you for telling us beforehand what it will be like to be a follower of Christ. Thank you, Father. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.